In Toronto and through our province of Ontario, we have a housing supply problem at almost every price range. And with this lack of supply comes big demand and in turn comes escalating prices. This has been going on for years. For most of the decades I've been selling real estate, people back when I started in the 1980s were saying, how are my children ever going to afford to buy a house? And that's when I was selling houses for like $100,000. Our latest stats show that the average price for a home in Toronto is now $1.1 million. And a recent survey by the Ontario Real Estate Association, which I'm a member of, says that half of the potential first-time buyers don't think they'll ever be able to own a home and are giving up altogether. Today, I'm going to speak with the president of the Ontario Real Estate Association about this disturbing survey that they've done and what can be done to help people fulfill that dream of home ownership. I'm Desmond Brown, and welcome to Sold in the Six. Tim Hudak is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. I first met him when I was a journalist, and he was a member of provincial parliament from the Niagara area. And he later went on to be the leader of the Provincial Progressive Conservatives. Tim, welcome to Sold in the Six. Hey, Desmond, good seeing you again. I, I remember those days, and I really like dealing with you now. You're not grilling me. <laughs> you're not giving me the heat in those media interviews. Uh, oh, maybe you're going to. Yeah. And no, it's great to hear yeah. you Sold in the Six. It's, I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's so great to have you, Tim. So you resigned from the provincial legislature in, what was it, 2016? And now you've been our CEO at ARIA. For about five years, right? Yeah, you, you got it. it uh, 21 years there in public uh, public life. Uh, I like to joke around that's more of a sentence than they give you for second degree murder in our country. And <laughs> I eventually got out for good behavior. And I, I really like the, the real estate issues. I really love the notion of, you know, creating more homeowners in our province. And when the CEO job came up at ARIA, I put my name in the ring. Uh, they picked me and it's it's been a really exciting four and a half years now. Yeah, well, we're really happy to have you as the CEO. So I'm going to ask you what people always ask me. How's real estate? Uh, the, how's the market? But this makes yeah. you very how's popular. Real how's the market? This makes you very popular at every cocktail party and barbecue, though. Like, this is the most talked about topic in Canada next to the weather, I think. No, does it ever. Yeah, one, one thing I, uh, I really enjoyed this, I know the job. I mean, working with, with people like you who know what's happening in, in the city of Toronto, province as a whole. You know, later today, I'm speaking with... Uh, uh, one of our leaders from Eastern Ontario, it gives you a chance to keep your fingertips on what's going on across the province. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really. Well, that, the way I encapsulate this is, is we've come out of COVID uh, or coming out of COVID. Well, things have um, moderated a bit in the marketplace. Whether you're a big city or a small town, you saw a significant increase in demand for homes. Mm -hmm. You saw a limit in supply. So you saw multiple offers uh, everywhere. Uh, I worry uh, all the time about uh, home ownership slipping out of reach for you know average hardworking Canadians, mm -hmm. and uh, the same thing that you've dealt with in in Toronto, you're seeing in small towns too, where you know you always dreamt you could buy a home in the neighborhood you grew up in, that is increasingly farther away from uh, hardworking people in our in our province. We need to do something about that. Yeah, it really is. So let's talk about the survey that was conducted by Aria. So fifty fifty six percent of Ontario, or fifty fifty six percent of would-be homeowners in Ontario have given up. They're pessimistic on whether they'll ever be able to own a home. Um, this is pretty concerning. Is, is this like a wake-up call? 
Yeah, it's a, it's like a five alarm bell going off as a as a wake up call. It really is, and I know that's when you've read through the report, you'll have some more uh, questions about what's in there. So I'll just do top level. I mean, if if your um, listeners want to see more information, go to orea.com, O-R-E-A.com, and see the full survey. But we regularly check the pulse of uh, Ontarians. We want to see, you know, how are they feeling about the market? Uh, is their aspiration to capture the Canadian dream and own a home or get a move up home when the kids start uh, getting bigger still within reach? And a few things happened during COVID that has pushed that further away. So I, um, I do think this is a five alarm bell for governments that they need to do something to help with affordability when it comes to home ownership. And again, that's whether big cities or small towns and it's particularly acute among those 45 and under. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Where are we seeing this? Is it mostly Toronto and the Golden Horseshoe, or are we seeing this in all of the communities across Ontario right now? Well, Toronto is a great place to live, and you have people that, from all over Canada and the world that want to live there. So this has been an issue in Toronto for some time, but now for a couple of factors from COVID, it has spread pretty well to every corner um, of the province. There may be parts of uh, far northern Ontario where it's not as much of an issue, but really, uh, it has uh, spread out to pretty well every city, town, and village. And, you know, Desmond, you and I worked in, in a similar world before. You're doing a great job as a real estate leader. And, you know, one thing that you know from both walks of life is that home ownership has been such a strong Canadian value. It builds stronger communities. It is a great way to ensure that people save for their retirement. And study after study shows that people who um, own homes, their kids tend to do better in school, get better jobs, mm -hmm. marriages stay together more often. Like all the indicators are very positive. That's why governments have always had pro home ownership policies in Canada to help build the middle class. It's been attractive for new immigrants to our country. Like my grandparents wanted to own a home pretty much as soon as they set foot in Ontario. But if that we have gone backwards since 2016, where it's getting harder and harder, that great ideal in Canada that you had a better shot at owning a home than your parents and grandparents has now been put upside down these last five years. Oh boy, is it ever. Now, I'm a little bit surprised at what you said there that we're seeing this in all of the areas of Ontario. I mean, there was a time when people thought that, hey, you know, we'll cash in the house in Toronto, we'll move to smaller communities, or I can't afford to buy in Toronto and I'm going to go and buy, let's say, up in, you know, North Bay or something like that. And, uh, you know, if the jobs are there, great. But this is, to me, like really, really quite alarming that people are actually leaving the province. A number of factors here have accelerated what was already a bit of a trend. I mean, the trend pre-COVID was that people would drive till they could afford it. Mm -hmm. And if they couldn't get a house in downtown Toronto or they looked at the suburbs, they couldn't afford one of the suburbs, they go to the exurbs and farther away so they could drive to work. COVID made a couple of, um, I'll say, three really significant changes. Desmond, I know you've talked about this previously in your podcast, but you know, here's my point of view. Um, number one, it, it did cause people to say, I would like a bit more space, maybe to kick the soccer ball around with my daughter with the yard, maybe for a home office for work from home or bring grandma to live with us. Yeah. Um, number two, with the ability to work from home, um, people can actually live farther away the way things are looking, a hybrid workplace, more flexibility. So people may be looking more to smaller cities and, and uh, smaller towns. And third, COVID caused a lot of people to evaluate their life decisions and sub said, you know what, maybe I just want to retire earlier, change my career, move to the countryside. And as a result of all those three factors, you saw shifts. More people were interested in buying a home. It's a place of safety and security and more places in the province. 
problem is we did not build anywhere near enough homes to capture that increased demand. And as a result, more buyers, fewer sellers, prices have gone up everywhere. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more about what some of the solutions could be. But, you know, going back now and taking a look at, you know, the new work models. And, you know, I know in the Toronto Star article um, that was written by Tess Kalinowski, who is a really good friend of Soul in the Six and a great journalist, she um, had you quoted as saying that there was a, uh, you know, people go to New Brunswick and live in New Brunswick, but still uh, work online here in Ontario. And and we're seeing more and more of that, you think? I mean, I know a lot of the employers are saying they want people back in the offices. They have a plan to bring people back into, into the workplace. Um, but do, do you really think that's sustainable? So it is a factor, and it, it should be uh, a, a major wake-up call as we discussed for government. You know, we, we hear from, you know, real estate leaders like yourself, Desmond, across the province that they had more and more clients who are looking to move outside of Ontario, generally to the eastern provinces, also to Quebec. Mm-hmm. We said, okay, let's actually test this out beyond anecdote. So we actually went into the field and uh, we did find, disturbingly, that particularly among 45 and younger, people in the market to buy a home and they just couldn't find one they could uh, afford where they wanted to live. And about 45%, sorry, 46% of those 45 and under said they either were considering or had seriously considered leaving Ontario just based on home ownership. Hmm. And in the past, we would have told those people, you know, government might have said, hey, wait a little longer in the rental unit or live with mom and dad, you know, a bit longer. Yeah. And now they say, no, heck with it. I, I can actually live somewhere else. I can telecommute to work uh, through work from home. And we're seeing uh, so many now pulling up uh, routes and moving outside of a province. And that is a major problem for two reasons. Number one, you're breaking up families. So that 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 will hurt yeah. family structures. But secondly, you know, that's a major economic loss. When you see millennials and then Generation Z very willing to leave Ontario, that could have a major implication for our future job creators and entrepreneurs. Yeah, we're losing some of our really, really bright young people. Yeah, precisely. It, it, and it was, you know, when you look at in our survey, again, people can read it at orea.com, orea.com. Uh, it was at a huge level for those 29 and under. So people now, you know, getting getting jobs, getting promotions, maybe the future job creators um, are really looking outside of, of our province now uh, to start their families and begin their careers. So if you haven't given up and you're still in the market to buy a home, I suggest that you get pre-qualified and to call my mortgage guy, Jason Georgopoulos of Dominion Lending. Jason will get you the best rates and terms for a mortgage. He can choose from 30 different lenders. So get in touch with Jason. He can be reached at jasong at dominionlending.ca. Interesting that you mentioned that uh, they waited and they waited as long as they could pretty well. Um, And you mentioned the age 45. I know when I bought my first house, I think I was uh, 27 years old. I was lucky. You know, I I was in real estate at the time, uh, my first time around in real estate. And I think 
what, what we paid, $150,000 for it, Coxwell Danforth area, oh, 150. Oh man. Okay. I remember, you know, like I said, my, one of my average, my average price in selling houses back there in the uh, late eighties was about a hundred thousand. And a friend of mine who's a mortgage broker says, you know what, you may want to move up to the 120 range. The commissions are higher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, look, now look at the numbers. I'm, I'm placing first time buyers in houses at 1.5, 1.6, 1.7. So, I mean, they have to make a lot of money to be able to afford something like that. Plus they have to be able to get some help along the way as well. And that's usually where, you know, that old saying, the, the bank of mom and dad comes in or even their, their, yep. um, their grandparents are co-signing on mortgages. Um, do you see that as being a little bit dangerous for, for that generation, the, the, the parents and the grandparents who have saved up a lot of money all through the years just to give it to the, to, to their children or grandchildren. And it's risky. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, and people are just trying to make do as best as possible. It's, it's, it's very human. You know, um, the moms and dads, they, they love their, their millennial generation Z kids dearly. They want to see them succeed. They listen to mom and dad. They went out, got a good education and a good job. They made the right decisions. Mm -hmm. But now they're feeling betrayed because that home they thought they would get is no longer within reach. So mom and dad love them, but probably Desmond, you're right, wouldn't mind if they, you know, moved out of the house finally and got a place of their own mm -hmm. and they're willing to contribute that way. So people are dealing with it, but I, I think there's more we can do than rely on the bank of mom and dad. And at ARIA, we not only, you know, research consumer uh, attitudes, we also put solutions on the table for governments to undertake. Yeah, well, let's hear some of those. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's supply. Like if, the sad reality is it's a game of increasingly cruel musical chairs. Where you have more and more buyers, you know, surrounding fewer and fewer homes, mm -hmm. and then they end up not getting a place at the end of the day. So, what's the solution in that game? Well, you have to add more chairs. You have to add more supply. And I'm glad to talk uh, at length about this. But top of top of mind here, what we put on the table is encouraging governments uh, to, through their official plans, open up more areas for housing supply in urban areas. That could be yeah. more densification, building around subway and um, TTC, uh, sorry, and uh, GO stations, building above them. The Ford government is now doing that. We think that's a great uh, idea. Getting rid of some of these 1970s disco era bylaws uh, that restrict innovation in the marketplace. Maybe that's laneway housing. Maybe that's smaller homes. There's a lot you can do in urban areas. We also believe that as a result of COVID, that many commercial buildings and government buildings will be underutilized. More work from home, less of a footprint. So can we convert some of that underutilized or even abandoned government property into housing? Some is already built. That's good for the environment. You could convert it to residential uh, or if it's uh, old space or brownfields, open that up for housing as well. Lots of ideas on the table. Yeah. Just requires a will of government to get the job done. Well, that seems to be the huge stumbling block when it even comes to developers. It's all the red tape that's tied up at the municipal levels. And, you know, you have great you know, suggestions there about, you know, building over subways and uh, using the commercial space, converting commercial space. But it's the city levels I'm finding that get in the way. We have to change the zoning for all of this. And it takes them so long to get to these issues and it's not helping. I mean, all we find is that we're having less and less supply. Our demand here in Toronto anyway, which is you know, the ripple effect has made it to all of Ontario um, is huge. Like we are so short of inventory 
And that just keeps leading to higher and higher prices and more and more people being priced out of the market. So I'm not sure. Like, how do we how do we get to municipal governments? I, I really do think it, it it falls on municipal governments first of all. I know the the province and and the feds can come up with all kinds of great ideas and so on to help out, but it really does fall on the municipal government. I think. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, and and you know that intuitively from your work in media and now in in real estate that it's the the nimbyism that a local council will often have to respond to, and as a result, they're reluctant to approve uh, more projects or change zoning bylaws. And I get that, 21 years in the business, they'll be focused, focused more on the voters who are there today, as opposed to those who want to move into the area. So here's what you need. And, and you put a big red circle around the red tape issue. Agree 100%. We believe that the province needs a carrot and stick approach to help nudge municipalities in the right direction. Yep. Carrot would be, you know, every year in the budget, governments will have infrastructure money for water, for sewer, for transit. So how about this, Desmond? How about the government says, OK, we'll put your project at the top of the list uh, if you agree to increase housing spaces by 10 percent so people can actually live in their hometown. So you'd actually actively reward municipalities who are playing ball to keep home ownership within reach. There's an example of a carrot. And if they don't, they say, no, we're not interested. We don't care. Well, then the project gets lower on the list for infrastructure. And then you do need some sticks. You do need to uh, force that behavior sometimes as well. Ministerial zoning orders uh, are a tool that does exist at the provincial level that if a municipality requests it, um, for example, they can help overcome these red tape barriers and move a project forward more quickly. Okay, so you you know the Conservatives who are in power right now, obviously. Um, would the Municipal Affairs Minister be willing to take that type of step, do you think? So the answer is yes. And, and you know, I got to give credit where credit is is uh, due. We've had very good relationships with all four political parties. Uh, each have put some of our ideas uh, on the table uh, in their own way. But the uh, Ford government did bring forward something called the More Homes, More Choice Act. In reality, that was probably the most pro-homeownership legislation we've seen in uh, decades. I like it, too, because we put about 10 ideas on the table for the province, and they, they put a check mark beside eight of them in that bill. So they have done that. The problem is we need municipalities then to open up that toolbox they've been given and use the tools to create more affordable homes for people, both rentals and ownership. Uh, and the minister does have the power of the ministerial zoning orders. They have used that to accelerate projects for job creation as well as for housing. It's a tool that you don't want to use right out of the gate, but sometimes you run into so many obstacles and so much delay that you have to pull that trigger. Can you see anything happening fairly soon though so there has there has been progress we are building more homes for a long period of time we're actually building the same or fewer homes each year um, than we used to 20 years ago so more population more immigration a big group of millennials coming to the homeowning age and we're building fewer homes than we did before they were born that was nuts so we are moving in the right direction but we need to put a bit more gas in the tank and reward municipalities and obviously the best way to do this is have the province municipality on the same page, the same neighborhoods, building along transit lines in cities would be a good example of that. But we do believe there should be a carrot and a stick approach to actually get the job done. You know, we talk about this dream of home ownership and it's dwindling for many people. But when you take a look at some of these large cities around the world, say, you know, like New York City, London, um, even in some um, areas of Germany, like the, the number of people who own is very, very low. 
do we have to come to that realization here, let's say in a larger uh, metropolis like Toronto, uh, that, you know what, you may not be able to own a home. You know, you'll make a good living, but you won't be able to own. And it's really not that bad not being able to own a home. I mean, I'm in real estate and I, I'd love people to be able to buy everything that they could, obviously, right? But um, I think we have to, maybe we have to get to that realization that, you know, not everybody's going to be able to buy a house. Well, well look, I, I would agree with that if we were out of space and out of options. We're up against a mountain or an ocean or something like that, and there is just no room to build. But we do have a greater capacity to do so, whether that's building up and more dense in urban areas. Those European cities are already far more dense than we are. There's lots of uh, brown fields or green fields that are not environmentally sensitive where you can put uh, new homes. Mm -hmm. I do believe we will have an excess of government uh, land. For example, in New York City, um, the mayor there, I think it was Bloomberg at the time, uh, brought in hundreds of thousands of new and, and affordable uh, home units, both, both for ownership and for rental by using underutilized government property. So if, if you can do it in Manhattan, Desmond, you know, surely you can find some way to do that in the city of Toronto. Well, the other thing you mentioned too in, uh, in Tessa's article was the rent to own. And, um, you know, we've heard this for a number of years. We just don't have enough landlords out there who are willing to let their properties go, to let their tenant come in and start paying enough for a down payment to sell it to them. You know, a lot of the landlords that we deal with play the long game here. They, 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 they buy the properties and they hold on to them for a long time before they sell them and they get a great return in that way. Um, I know you also mentioned that the solution for a rent to own could be um, housing built by municipalities and uh, the municipalities or, or the, uh, one of the levels of government would hang on to them and then have this program for the tenants to start chipping away, be able to afford to actually buy the property that they're, that they're renting. Yeah, we think this is a, a solution that can be polished and modernized and, and a great way to help people get the keys to the first home. Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned, whether it's uh, government owned homes or for a not for profit uh, or the municipality helping to build them as a partner, that'd be tremendous for um, lower uh, income, lower middle income ways to get into the market. It's worked in the past, mm -hmm. but we need to you know, bring it up to, to modern standards to do that, where you'd pay the rent a little bit more on top. So you're developing then principal to then eventually buy the home. And then the government money, or if it's a not-for-profit partner, could then recycle what they get when the sale happens to invest in new homes to help out others get in the market. The other exciting aspect of this, Desmond, is there are new financial technologies to help people make that down payment. I'm sure as you've talked about on the podcast, that is not necessarily the mortgage payment, it's often the down payment that's the big obstacle. Mm -hmm. So there are companies, there are pension funds, or even government um, that could be co-owners in a home. So they help make that down payment, and then they get paid off over time or with a return when the, when the house is sold down the road. That's kind of a 21st century version of rent-to-own, but there are laws written in the last century that artificially stand in the way because nobody in 1960 ever guessed we'd have this kind of technology. Great. Can, maybe I'm missing something that's out there right now as a program that's doing this, but... Um, is there one out there now? And um, are the people that you've spoken to in government open to doing this? Uh, the good news is yes. Uh, there, there is a mandate across government to try to reduce red tape, to take laws that uh, were created uh, two generations ago and make sure they fit modern reality and technology. 
So there are another a number of companies that are looking to you know co-invest with homeowners. There's also the the national government program, which could be improved, where they take an equity share in the home to help you make that down payment. It's a bit limited right now, but you could expand it or have a provincial companion. Uh, and then you know once you've purchased the home, then you pay off either in immediate payments or when the home is sold uh, to that company. Unison is one company that's done that in the states. They've looked into uh, Ontario Key Living fits in this uh, area as well. The problem is that there's some legislation around the land transfer tax and around the landlord tenant legislation that just never anticipated the scenario of co-investing in a home. So we've got to knock down that red tape. It's a work in progress, but I think Desmond, the government is interested and all political parties are more ways to help people finance their homes that are flexible, that are responsible, but help you get the keys. Okay. Well, it's great that you're influencing them to at least move forward on these um, initiatives anyway. Um, I want to talk to you quickly about technology and how technology plays a huge factor in the demand. You know, when I started back in 1985, we had, um, we, we weren't using computers. We had books, uh, MLS books, and our marketing was basically very local. You know, people would get these books, they'd get these little uh, tear outs and they'd see the, the properties basically through us. We'd have to tell them about it. Now, with the internet, our reach for marketing properties is global. And it's a good thing. I mean, last week I sold a condo on Bay Street, um, sight unseen, to uh, an investor from Vancouver. Wow. Um, yeah. Must be, he's giving his kid a, birth, a birthday present That's uh, a nice when he present. turns 18. Nice present, a million dollar condo. Nice. <laughs> but the down, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a good parent at all, am I? <laughs> We're looking at a dog, you know? Yeah, exactly. A puppy. That's a good 18th birthday present. The downside of this uh, global reach is that it can lead to money laundering. Um, great opportunities for, for people to, uh, to hide their money. And you mentioned that as well, that they're, uh, that is contributing. That is one of the contributors anyway to the uh, low supply that we have. Yeah, uh, uh, realtors in Ontario are really mad about this. Um, you know, they'll go to they'll go to bat for a family who's played by the rules, done everything right, and then you know you find out that the property got snapped up by you know the niece of a of a drug lord. We need to face the fact that uh, the dirty money um, is coming into our province, investing in Canadian real estate. It is being uh, laundered in and hidden behind companies that simply can hide behind a numbered company and not say who the real owners are. Now, the Americans, uh, the Europeans, uh, the, uh, the British um, have put in ways to try to stop this money, uh, to track it, and has left Canada now as a prime target uh, to invest in. Mm -hmm. Doesn't these tend to be corrupt government uh, officials uh, overseas or criminal organizations? They'll purchase Canadian real estate because it's safe. They know it's a good investment. And then they hide it behind a veil of a corporate name. Uh, we want to see that transparency brought in. We want to see that money taken out of our province. We don't want to see a single parcel of land that could go to Canadians who play by the rules uh, go into the hands of a corrupt official uh, or a criminal warlord. Yeah, well, we have our our uh, anti-money laundering legislation here. We as agents have to get all of the information, of course, and submit it. But do you really think it's a huge problem? I know we hear about money laundering and so on, um, but is it really as big as you're saying? Well, it's in the billions of dollars. Um, so 
the, to their credit, um, the new democratic government in British Columbia has brought in what they call a beneficial owner registry. Uh, it lists exactly who the owners are. So you could match up uh, the owners potentially with crimes that were done in South America or Asia. Mm-hmm. So they've had the courage to do that. They looked into it and, and they found that, um, that Ontario is probably the leading jurisdiction, BC second, when it came to money laundering. So we know it exists. Wow. Uh, we have talked to the provincial government. We've worked with Korea, our national association. They've talked to the federal government. The Trudeau government did talk about this in the recent budget that they want to create a national registry. So we've made progress, Desmond. But this is one we pulled uh, Canadians. Uh, no surprise to you. It's 90 some percent that agree that we should eliminate this ability of dirty money to come into our province and hide behind mm-hmm. uh, uh, shields of saying it's a numbered company when it belongs to somebody from overseas who's corrupt or a criminal. Wow, it would be great if we actually yeah, could, could get some traction on that. Yeah, we, and we've talked to the province, and it did get mentioned uh, in the provincial budget too. I, I suspect with COVID, they've had their hands full. We're not going to give up. We think this is fair, it's simple, and it has been proven to work in other countries like ours. So it's time to put the same protections around Canada and leave Canadian real estate for those who follow the rules. Mm-hmm. I agree. Okay, I want to touch on one other subject while I have you because I have read your op-ed on this. And in my last podcast, we actually spoke to a realtor in Australia who was also an auctioneer, Darren Clark from uh, Brisbane, Australia. And uh, they love auctions down there. They love them. (laughs) And uh, don't you think we should have the option here? Like we do have the option. A lot of people aren't using, but don't you think we should be using them a lot more here? What do you think? Yeah, so we should have the option. Um, we do, and we've suggested to the government they expand the option, but it should not be forced. It, it shouldn't be mandated. And I got to listen to that episode. I'm sorry, I missed that one. I'll, I'll go back and, and listen to it because it seems so. Yeah, you'll like it. Yeah, in Australians, I mean, they're they're fun. They're fun people. I love the accent and all that, so I can totally see it. But I don't know if I'd make that choice, right? I'm just thinking of you know, Deb and I sell our property, and then all the neighbors gather around on our front lawn and talk about how we let the furnace go where I was smoking cigars <laughs> in the basement. They can still smell it or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Not my style. But, you know, ultimately, look, when it comes to um, to your home, um, that is your your greatest uh, asset. It is a place of your fondest uh, memories. It is precious. And you may be selling your home because you're planning for retirement. Maybe you're selling your home because you got to have money to buy a larger one because the kids came along. We just believe fundamentally that the homeowner should be in the driver's seat with what she does with her home. And if she wants to do an Absolutely. auction, she wants to use traditional offer process, she wants to use Desmond, right? That should be her choice. Don't force an auction on her. Yeah, because we're getting a lot of pressure uh, through media outlets and people who have lost out in multiple bids, um, questioning the transparency of the the process that we go through. And I can see where they're coming from there because, you know, some of my colleagues are not... I guess, above board sometimes. And that doesn't help uh, the rest of us who are. And, you know, the more transparent, the more transparent, the better, I think. Yeah, totally, totally get it. And Debbie and I have been in that driver's seat. We bought a place in Toronto. We part of multiple offers. We lost uh, a lot of times. Eventually, we're successful. And I know that frustration. You dream about where the crib is going to go, what you're going to do with with the backyard. You Mm -hmm. have these pictures only to find out. And, you know, that's that's why we suggest um, that um, you can give people the option if they want to engage in an, an auction process and where everybody sits around the table and puts their offers on the table. Um, or if they want to do that online, sure, fill your boots. 
But as you know, Desmond, that that's very personal information, how much Debbie and I can afford, how much we have to be borrowing, if we have to sell our home. There's a lot in an offer that is very sensitive information. And I don't think every Canadian is going to be comfortable with sharing that with a bunch of strangers. And, you know, will that cause me to be prejudiced when I sell my home or the next time I'm going to make an offer to kind of know where I'm coming from? So give people that choice. But because of that, that privacy of personal information, that they should make sure it is fully consent basis. You should go that with your eyes fully open. Yeah, definitely. And you'll see when you, or, and you know, you'll see when you listen to that, that last episode, that the way they set it up, they have four Saturdays of open houses mm. and the potential buyers do all of their due diligence before they come into the auction. So the privacy part of it um, is really not that much of a factor. You'll see that, Tim. Okay. Yeah, they come in and they've got all their financing, everything in place. Uh, they're, they've, they've done their home inspection before and they're ready to roll. Um, you know, the only thing that comes out right away is the price they're willing to pay. And like this, uh, this gentleman, Darren Clark, said, who actually started off by auctioning sheep <laughs> and moved into real estate. He <laughs> says, you know, sometimes people win by $1,000 yeah. and they see exactly you know, who they beat out by that thousand dollars. Right. So he said, it's, it's a pretty exciting, uh, yeah. it's an exciting day for auctions. Well, it's one thing not to lose sight of, and I look forward to listening to that, um, on that podcast, but let's, let's not, um, lose sight of the essential issue. And that's how we began the discussion. It's really a matter of supply inventory and yep. choice in the marketplace, yeah, it sure not, is. not the system. And in Australia and New Zealand, they're not forced to use auctions. People choose it. And, and why do they choose it? They choose it because they get higher prices. Auction fever develops. So this is not going to be a cure-all for affordability issues in, in Canada. You've seen the same things in Australia. Our focus needs to be on increasing supply, choice in the marketplace, making sure that any realtors who take advantage of somebody get cracked down upon by the regulators, suspend, revoke their license, fines, what have you, give more tools to crack down on any bad behavior when it comes to selling or buying a home. And third, give people choice. Just make sure they understand how the rules of the game operate and make choices as adults. Great. Tim, we're wrapping up. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for being on Sold in the Six. Finally, I know I wanted to get you on way back at the beginning, uh, but uh, you know, timing and everything, it didn't work. But this was perfect to have you on today to talk about, you know, some people out there that are losing that dream of buying a home. So I thank you very, very much for being with us. My men's pleasure, Desmond. Great, great work on Sold in the Six. And I want to thank you personally for your leadership in the real estate profession. It's a joy to work with you. And thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks very much, Tim. And that's Tim Hudak. And he's the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. And that's our latest episode of Sold in the Six. And I'd like to thank my producers, Podcasts That Pop. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Sold in the Six and you'll start receiving new episodes automatically. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. My handle is DezInTheSix. That's six spelt with the number six, I-X, you know, the cool way. And I also have a website. Check that out. It's InTheSixRealEstate.com. If you have a story idea or just want to get in touch with me, feel free to email me at des at desmondbrown.ca. I'm Desmond Brown. Until next time. <laughs>